0: To the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.blchurch.tv. Good. It's good to see everybody here today. For those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Joey. We want to say welcome. Scott, I appreciate all those announcements. He does an awesome job each and every week, uh, getting, getting all that information out to us, especially the last second announcements that he didn't prepare for. does an amazing job. And I just appreciate all of our uh, team here that we have several that are out of town this weekend, and many of you have stepped up and filled in spots and gaps, and we just are so thankful. I think we have the best church around that's uh, biased, but I know I, I believe that with my whole heart. Because we believe in being a church that is driven by love, excellence, and filled with the Spirit of God. And I just know that God's presence is here. And every time you gather in the presence of the Lord, you come the same, but you leave changed. You leave a little differently than when you walked in. And, And for those of you that are guests here today, our challenge to you is to come three weeks in a row. We know that it's hard to figure out a uh, new spiritual home in just one visit. And so we challenge you to come three weeks in a row. And I know that every week you come, you have have a chance to be loved on by this awesome church family. And, uh, and if you've been here and you are thinking that God's led you here to make this your new spiritual home, I want to say welcome home. Welcome home. And we're excited to partner with you in bringing the kingdom of God to this city and the surrounding area. And it's so exciting. We are in week five of our study in the book of Revelation. Have you guys been enjoying this journey so far? It's, it's been awesome digging in. We are going to be looking at part one of the next uh, letter to the church of Smyrna today. Where we'll uh, take a short break for baptism uh, Sunday next week, and then uh, we'll pick back up the week after in part two. So uh, you'll definitely want to be here for that. That's so exciting. Um, But here, Jesus is beginning to address another church. We looked at the church of Ephesus last week, but this week we are looking at the church of Smyrna. And just like last week, Jesus introduces himself in a unique way, but he's pulling from part of the description John uses to describe Christ in chapter 1. So, as you're looking at these letters, you can always refer back to chapter one of Revelation and see how John is pulling from that in these letters to the church. So, beginning in Revelation chapter two, in verse eight, this is the letter to the church at Smyrna. And here's what the Lord says He tells John, He says, Write this, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came back to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. And our heart's desire today, God, is to glorify you, to lift up the name of Jesus, because it is the name that is above every name. And Lord, we trust in the promise that says when the Son of Man is lifted up, you will draw all people to uh, yourself. And so God, we lift up Jesus today. We celebrate Jesus. We ask you, God, to fill this place with your presence, that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind that understands, and a heart ready to receive and believe everything that you have for us today. And God, I pray that your heart would be on display, that you would encourage us, but you would also challenge us in the very walk that we have with you each and every day, that we would grow closer to you, and become more dedicated and committed and surrendered to the call you've put on every one of our lives to be a witness and a disciple-maker in this place and time. And we just thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. So Jesus opens this letter to the church of Smyrna, and he says to this church, this letter uh, that it's coming from the one who's the first and the last. That might sound familiar because we talked about this in, in week one as the John, in his description of Christ, would pull from the, the, the times that he was living in. He would pull from popular knowledge of the gods, the pantheon of gods, more notably titles from Zeus himself, what was believed to be the King God, and he would use those titles for God God and now for Jesus Christ. So what we see is Jesus introducing himself as the one who's the first and the last. Jesus is trying to make it clear beyond a shadow of a doubt there is only one God in heaven and there is no other. He is the God above all gods. He is the King God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He was the first to exist, and he is the last to ever exist. There will be no other gods but him. So he is the first and the last. But Jesus, unlike Zeus, unlike the other gods at the time, the other gods would require the people to make sacrifices, the people to sacrifice themselves in order to appease the gods. They would even have them sacrifice their own children to appease the gods. Continual sacrifice for appeasement. But Jesus is not just the first and the last. He is the one who died and rose again. He is the God of all gods who did not require us to sacrifice ourselves. He came and made himself a sacrifice. He came to be the sacrifice for all of us. So that our sins could be forgiven, what separated us from him could be overcome, could be taken out of the way. And he didn't just die, but he conquered death through the power of his resurrection. So he's not just the one who died, he's also the one who lives forevermore. He is our hope, our salvation. He is great, and he is also very, very good. He's God Almighty. What's interesting is that out of all of the descriptions he could have used in chapter 1, that Jesus would use this one for this church. He could have used any of the other descriptions depicting him uh, in this passage. He could have depicted himself as a conquering king, as the the son of David who would come, the righteous one, the victorious one, the savior of, uh, of, of the kingdom of God, the one bringing the kingdom into Fruition. He could be arrayed in glory, but instead he depicts himself as the one who died and came back to life. Why do you think that is? Why do you think this is the way Jesus chose to describe himself to this church? What is he signaling to the believers in Smyrna and really to us today? By describing himself as the one who died and came back to life. I believe the answer is solved in the very next verse. And this is where we're going to camp out today. Because Jesus says to the believers in Smyrna, after describing himself as the one who died and rose again, in verse 9 he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus immediately points to their tribulation and their poverty. That word tribulation can mean affliction or persecution or distress. He points to the trouble and the the difficulties that they're going through. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now, when Jesus says, I know it, he for one is speaking from experience. He's speaking from experience. He knows what we've gone through. Why? Because he himself has gone through it as the one who has died. In Isaiah 53 verse 3, the prophet Isaiah says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus knows what we're going through. He knows what you're going through because he went through it. He knows, he understands, he relates, he gets it. Isn't it awesome to know that God gets you in such a deep level beyond what anybody else can get you? He knows what you're going through. He knows what your struggle is. He's been through it. But secondly, he knows because he is also God. In the eyes of the Lord, we saw a few weeks ago, they travel to and fro among the earth. They see everything. Nothing escapes the gaze of God. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He knows all things. He's well aware of everything going on in our lives. He knows what you're going to say before you say it, what you're going to think before you think it. He knows what's deep in your heart even when you don't see it. He knows what's going to happen in the world before it happens. Why? Because he declared the end from the beginning. He knows it all. I heard a pastor once say and. Did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? It's kind of funny, but think about it. Like we have those light bulb moments like, oh, man, I never do that. That's awesome. That never happens to God. And so when you read the New Testament and you're reading Jesus, don't you think it's funny when he asks people questions? Like when Jesus is in the garden and he's talking to Adam, he's like, Adam, Who told you you were naked? Do you think he didn't know? Of course he knew. Is he humoring us? No, I just think he likes to have conversation. He likes to have fellowship. He likes to draw truth out in question. But he knows by experience, and he also knows because he is God. Nothing takes him by surprise. So not only does he understand their tribulation, but he foresaw their tribulation a long way off. Not only were they struggling economically because he points out their poverty, but also their affliction, their religious persecution by those who claim to be Jews who are not. When it says he knows their slander, that word slander can also mean blasphemy. So, by translating as blasphemy, it's evident that these people were Jews by descent but they were rejectors of their Messiah. They didn't, re- they didn't accept Christ, they rejected their Messiah. So they were blasphemers by rejecting the Messiah that they said they were waiting for to come rescue them from their sins. And more notably, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Again, Satan is regarded as the power or God of this world. And he's often depicted in Scripture by the dominating influence of the world system at the time. In ancient times, it was often Babylon. We'll see that imagery later on in the book. But at the time Jesus is writing this, the world power is the the nation of Rome. The Roman authority was a prevailing power. So not only did Smyrna have a temple dedicated to Zeus in the the city itself on Mount Pegasus but it's likely that these Jews were in league with the Roman authority, which we'll see more clearly next week what they begin to do. But these Jews were deniers of Christ, and they were using their political sway to lay heavy burdens on the people and persecute these believers. So as Jesus is addressing these believers, He begins by recognizing their tribulation, recognizing their affliction, recognizing their poverty, And he uses this introduction as the one who was dead, but is now alive again, I believe, to telegraph something to them and something to us, something that he already has been saying since before he ever died, when he was walking this earth and he was involved in ministry before his crucifixion. There's something Jesus has been telling us from the very beginning, and it's found in John chapter 15, verse 20. In John 15, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. Remember this. Don't forget it. Remember this word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. A servant isn't greater than the master. If they persecuted me, They will also persecute you. They persecuted the perfect one, nailed him to a cross. What makes us think we're going to be exempt from persecution? Who is it that is doing the persecution? It's unbelievers. Those who are caught in the world system under the power and authority of the God of this world. And so Jesus, by saying he's the one who was dead but is now alive again, he's telegraphing something to these believers and even to us. Not deliverance from persecution and suffering. Not a turnaround in their poverty or their economic standing. But he's saying, beloved, this is part of the call. This is part of the call to follow me, to pick up your cross and follow me. And as you follow me, you can expect to be opposed, persecuted, and afflicted. Expect it. You know, this is not a message the church today wants to hear, it doesn't bode well for your marketing campaign. Come to church. Your life's going to suck. You know, that's, that's not really something you put on in the bulletin, you know, on in the invitation. We don't want to hear that. It's not how you build your attendance. Follow Jesus. Your life will be hard, sometimes terrible. But nonetheless, Jesus is reinforcing to these Smyrna believers, I know what you're going through. I know what you're about to face. I saw it coming, but I'm not going to stop it because this is part of the call on your life. I have a greater purpose at work, and when you surrendered your life to me, you said not my will, but yours be done. And you may not get it, I think this is for someone today, you may not get it, you may not understand it, but one day you will see it, because though I died, I didn't stay dead. I came alive again, so you know there's light at the end of the tunnel. Beloved, I just want to look briefly at why these believers suffered persecution There's really two reasons I believe they were suffering in this day and age and in this time. Number one, it's because as followers of Christ, they divorced themselves from the world. They divorced themselves from the world. In 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is what Paul tells Timothy. He says, share in what? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Share in the suffering. Put yourself in the mind of a a soldier. You've been enlisted. You've been sent overseas. You've got a job to do. You've got a place to be. You don't have time to get involved in civilian affairs. Because if you're not where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to do, you won't win the objective. You won't fulfill your mission. So you don't get caught up in those things. You stay focused. You stay in place. You stay active in what you've been tasked to do. Anytime you go against what culture expects, anytime a believer says, no, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not going to be associated with that. I'm not going to be involved with that. There is a level of ridicule. There is a level of disdain the culture will have for you. There's a level of opposition they'll have for you. The minute you say, I'm not going to be of this world, I'm going to be of a different world, be of the kingdom of God, there is much you have to give up. And there's a lot of pressure in this world, pressure to fit in. There's social pressures to keep up with. Pressures on how to dress, what kind of car to drive, what kind of house to live in, what kind of music to listen to, what kind of media personalities to follow on your social media, jokes to know, jokes to tell, games to play, shows to watch, places to visit, experiences to have. There's so many social pressures. But what's Paul tell Timothy? He says a soldier of Christ doesn't have time to get wrapped up in civilian affairs, Do I think God blesses us in many ways we don't deserve? Oh, yeah. We are deeply blessed. There are many things that we enjoy. There are many vacations we're able to take. There are things we're able to have. There's stuff that we we get each and every day that is such a blessing from God. Our God is a good God who loves to bless his children. There are adventures that he takes us on to bring us joy because he's a good daddy. But, beloved, there's a difference In having experiences and living for experiences, there's a difference in having nice things and living for nice things. There's also a difference in believing in Jesus and living for Jesus. There's a difference. There are many things in this life that pull against our desires to draw our hearts and our priorities away from the kingdom of God. And even the relationships that are the closest to us. Hear me on this. Jesus said something very poignant and very powerful. If we miss the message, we're going to miss what he was saying in Luke 14, verse 26. Here he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother... Wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Not that he'll struggle with being my disciple. He said, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, who does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and first count the cost? If he has enough to complete it, otherwise when he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, hear this. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is Jesus Christ. The letters are in red. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? No, parents, it doesn't mean you need to disown your kids, even though sometimes we feel like it. Husbands and wives, you stay together. It's okay. You don't need to get rid of each other. Kids, you don't need to get emancipated and divorce your parents. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that a true disciple of Christ needs to divorce their attachment To all that he has. To divorce your attachment. Because the reality is. That none of the things we have. Really belong to us anyway. Your kids don't belong to you. Your spouse doesn't belong to you. Your money doesn't belong to you. Your clothes don't belong to you. Everything you have. Everything you have belongs to the Lord. And until you can renounce all that you have, hear me on this. And I struggle with this too. I'm right here in this with you. Until you renounce all that you have, you release ownership of everything you have, there will always be a pull or a tearing in your spirit that keeps you from fully surrendering to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll hate the one and serve the other. At the heart of what he's getting at is a spirit of idolatry. And anything we put before the Lord is idolatry. Even our attempts to manage and control our lives, to keep peace in our lives, to you know, we worry about all these things and we're trying to manage, manage, manage. In reality, that that worry, that that control, this idolatry, it's an illusion of happiness. We think if we could just do this, then, then we could keep everything together and safe and, and we could be happy. It's just an illusion. It binds us down and robs us of God's blessings, because anytime we put anything before God, God's blessings can't flow in that area in our lives. By releasing what we have to the Lord, it's the true path to find joy and happiness. How do I know? It's because Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty nine, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever finds his life, whoever is trying to control and manage and discover happiness for themselves and, and do it apart from God and, 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 and seek all this in their lives, they're going to lose their life. But whoever releases that is going to find it in me. And, you know, sometimes God is going to call us to make some really hard decisions. He might call us to leverage our wealth for the kingdom of God. Like the story of the rich young ruler who came to him and says, dude, Jesus. I've been so good in my life. All those commandments, you know, the top 10 that God gave us back in the day, I have kept all of those commandments. Like, I am so good. What else do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus looked at the man, he said, you know, yeah, you've done all this, man, that's great. But one thing you're missing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then be my disciple. Oh, he didn't want to hear that. And it says he went away sorrowfully. He was burdened in his heart. Why? Because God wasn't really his God. Security was found in his wealth. And it burdened him, it made him sorrowful to think about giving that up. God may call us, call on us to make some difficult decisions. But what determines whether or not we walk away sorrowfully or what we walk away joyfully, it's determined by what we're actually living for. If all we have is God's and available to God for whatever He desires, then we know if He empties our bank account, He'll also be the one to fill it back up because He's Jireh. And He promised in Matthew 6.33 that if we seek the kingdom of God first... If we seek the kingdom of God first, if we seek the kingdom of God first, then all these things will be added to you. What things? Well, the stuff he was talking about before. What you should wear, what you're going to eat, the things that are going to take care of your needs. Divorce yourself from the world, from worldly attachment, seek God first, put God first, and God will take care of your needs. And I believe this is why Jesus said to the believers in Smyrna in Revelation 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know what you're going through. I, I see your economic turmoil, but you're actually rich. Why? Because they gave up for Christ. The more they struggled through, they faithfully did it in the name of Jesus, which means the more reward was awaiting for them in heaven. Don't lay up yourselves treasures in heaven or on earth where moth and dust can corrupt and thieves can break to steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and dust can't corrupt and the thief can't break in and steal. They were impoverished, impoverished. They were struggling. Why? They were doing it in the name of Christ. Therefore, they were poor in this earth, but they were rich in glory because they had much treasure in heaven. What we wrestle with in this life, what gets in the way of our willingness to sacrifice, I believe, is that we don't know what treasure to value most, the treasure in this life or the treasure in heaven. And we can see that in our priorities in the way we set up our lives and the things that we pursue and what we live for. But these believers, they valued heavenly treasure, which caused them to set up their lives to live for something greater than themselves and they were persecuted for. They were shunned. They were rejected. They were opposed. Beloved, if you live for the kingdom of God above all else, you will be hated by the world. Why? Because Jesus promised it. Those not running with you will be against you, even people in your own home. And I know some of you have experienced this very thing. You live your life trying to serve God, but there's someone in your home, someone in your life close to you that just doesn't get it, and they give you heck for it. It's to be expected. Number two, they suffered for his namesake. They not only divorced themselves from the world, but they did it willingly for his namesake. In Matthew 24, 9, he says... Jesus, talking about the end of days, he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation. He'll put you to death. You'll be hated by all the nations for my namesake. You see, it was their faith and their love for Jesus that led them into tribulation. It was their faith and love for Jesus that held them in their tribulation. It was faith and love for Jesus that carried them through their tribulation. And Jesus is writing to the church of Smyrna and really writing to all of us because suffering and persecution this is the call on every believer that the level of your effectiveness for Christ the level of your effectiveness for Christ will be determined by your willingness to sacrifice to be used by God in a great way will require sacrifice you will have to give up some in order to gain other it requires a sacrifice and right now in this nation, in this, in this cozy American country, believers can skate by avoiding suffering to many degrees because the culture we live in and the country we live in makes it easy to skate by unscathed by the world. But there's a danger in that. Just like we saw last week as Jesus is talking to the church of Ephesus. They were doing church. They were, they had like all banded together. They created this Christian country club built on their holiness code. They opposed everyone. that didn't live up to their standards. But they were devoid of the one thing that mattered most, love for Christ and love for one another. And I believe Jesus uses suffering To make or break the believer. To try and test the genuineness of your faith. And we see, to see what you're made of. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives a very popular parable. It's about the parable of seed. And there's seed that's sown in different areas, in different ways. And he interprets what these seed represent. And in verse 20, he says, The seed that was sown on rocky ground is the one who hears the word immediately and receives it with joy... Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately what? They fall away. God allows us suffering and tribulation and persecution in our lives. Why? To see what we're made of. If we really are his, if we're just pretending to play the game. tribulation, suffering, struggle will reveal what kind of disciple you are and a genuine disciple of Christ will be faithful to the end. If you're just along for the ride while it's fun and exciting, you're not going to last. Beloved Jesus is not looking for tailgaters. He's looking for trailblazers. A tailgater is along for the ride for the fun. But a trailblazer is willing to do whatever it takes to clear the path and to reach the goal. They go through thick and thin to reach the destination. And this word to the Smyrna believers, it's a call to us. Because Jesus, again, he prophesied in the last days there will be tribulation. It's going to come. In Matthew 24:21, he says, "There will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor, never will be." Those are haunting words. If we look at the history of mankind, the history of life, and all the atrocities, everything we've ever seen, every natural disaster, every plague, every peril on the earth, Jesus says there's something coming that's unlike anything that we've seen to this point, and something that will never be seen in its likeness again. There's something coming, which is the desperate need for believers to be deeply rooted in their faith and love for Christ. If we would recognize that Jesus put us here in the world, not to become part of the world, but to rise up out of it, and the call that we have to bring others with us, we would wake up to an incredible story and a great adventure right before us. But there is a strong pull in Christianity today not to be radical, but to be relevant. Any conference I go to, The church conference, church leader conference, there's always this this theme about how to bring in people from the outside. And I think it's necessary that we do things to reach out to people, invite people in ways that will connect, that will be attractive to the outside world. But there's such a push to be relevant that we want the world to come to us. We want to find a way to get the world to come to us, so we become relevant. By the way we do church, the way we dress, the lingo we use, the style that we have, to find ways to get them and convince them to come and get connected. But, beloved, I don't think we need to be relevant as much as we need to be radical. We need to not get the world to come into the church. We need to get the people out of the church to go into the world and take the gospel and the spirit of God with them. Taking the church into the world. Now that's radical. Now when I mean radical, I don't mean ridiculous. The church of Ephesus was ridiculous. They were all about what they were against, who they opposed, who didn't line up to their way of thinking. You know, I'm saying radical I don't mean ridiculous. We don't have to be like one of those churches that don't let women wear makeup or pants in church. You know what I mean? That you, you can't do contemporary music. You can only use an organ or a piano. The ones that focus on what you do on the outside, right? Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang out with those that do, right? There are churches that are all about what you look like on the exterior. I'm not talking about being ridiculous, But I am talking about being radical, living for something beyond yourself. As we divorce ourselves from the world and its passions and pursuits, renounce all that we have in order that we may be able to fully surrender to following him. And if we do that, that's going to lead us into some dark valleys. But we have a promise that even in the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear evil because he's with us. He's with us. He's with us. And if he died, we also know that he rose again. And if he rose again, then there's a promise for us as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, which dwells in you. No matter what you endure in this life, no matter what you go through, even if you give your life for Jesus Christ, death is not the end, it's only the beginning. Because one day a trumpet will sound, one day graves will open, one day you will rise To meet Jesus in the air, one day you'll receive a new body where there'll be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Sorrow and suffering will be but a faded memory, and you'll be ever present in the glory and presence of the Lord for all eternity. There's a promise. So it's not just that we are destined to suffer and be persecuted. But also, one day we will rise and shine like the sun. I've been humbled in my life. Here recently, especially, thinking that this life isn't all there is. There's a life to come, a life worth living for. And I've been asking myself this question what am I living for? What's the pursuit of my heart? And I know God's given us a vision for this church. It's not just to have a church in Clio. There's a much bigger vision. I believe that one day God will have built us to the place where we can start building churches overseas and network with churches overseas. There's, there's a global vision for this ministry. And to be a part of something like that is super humbling because, y'all, I have no idea what I'm doing. But God's blessing it. God's doing it. It's his work. So we're just along for the ride. But in the last few weeks, I have been reached out to through email by a few individuals. I've shared one before, but here recently, I got an email from this man named Eric uh, Wakol, or I don't know really how to pronounce his last name, but he sent me an email because he found us online, our website, and was listening to some of our teachings. And I probably had a two-page letter of encouragement about how much it's blessed us. Eric lives in Kenya. Never been to Kenya. Don't know anyone in Kenya. And so my first thought is, okay, is he going to ask for money? Is this a scam? I mean, is he buttering me up, right? So I just responded to him. We started having correspondence. And I found out that Eric is leading a small church in Kenya And I asked him about his testimony because he had shared some things with me. And so he wrote me back his testimony. This is a man who is a believer in Christ living today. And I'm going to read you his testimony as we bring the service to a close. And I want you to hear what people are going through. America, I don't believe in white privilege. I do believe in American privilege, especially in the church. Because what we experience here is not the experience of believers everywhere else. The majority of the world does not enjoy the blessings we have in the American church. So I'm going to read you this. I just want this to sink in. Put yourself in his place if this were you. If this was your life. Eric writes to me. He says, Brother Joey. I'm afraid of sharing my life weakness with you, sir, because you've, but since you've allowed me to share, now I can because we're fellow citizens in Christ's family. Your love for us is great, and my heart is fully open to air out all that is in my heart so that you may also plan how you can pray with us. I think we have a picture of Eric on the screen. It says, God connected us with his divine purpose, and we may never know what he has for both of us in his storehouse. The plans of God are always evident, and let us see the direction he's going to take, take us in his vineyard, praise God. But about life in my village, in my village it's sad that the level of poverty is widely spread here. Alcoholics, hopeless, drug addicts, widows, and orphans are too many. Confused and helpless, just waiting for someone to reach them with the word of God. People are slaves in the kingdom of darkness, and the devil has really sneaked in and started to steal, kill, and destroy Many innocent souls that it could have restored and served the Lord Jesus Christ in their future generations. Churches in my village are minimal, but Muslims have covered all over here, and the wrong perception has rooted in most of the families here. In terms of provision in my village, it's actually limited, and people are hopeless and struggle too much to bring food on their table. People of low class have no say in Kenya. Our country is too corrupt, starting from the head of state. Therefore, the poor have no rights and freedom here. The gap between the rich and the poor is extremely wide, and this has caused a lot of people living here in high poverty level. Therefore, we don't have full democracy here in Kenya, sir. About my Christian life, as I've been in ministry for 18 years now, through it all, I've seen the living God so faithful in all the benefits of serving him. I couldn't be who I am today if not for Christ Jesus for his reward of salvation to me. I say so because I was born in a family that didn't know God. My father was a Muslim, and he believed in superstition and witchcraft, knew no more about Christ, and he died a non-believer due to his beliefs. But I'm glad that out of this, God didn't allow our family to doom like that because he made me a voice in my entire family. As I speak now, I'm the only pastor in our tribe of 200 and above people. But I'm glad I preached to my mother and got salvation in all my brothers and sisters. Even December last year, I took three Kiswahili Bibles to my mom and brothers. They were glad and told me they are reading them every day to grow in the knowledge of God, and they were baptized and are under the care of a pastor, Samuel, in that village. About my education, I was a sharp student in class, but because of my father didn't value education, my brothers and sisters dropped out of school and started brewing alcohol. One day at the age of 13, I intended a mega crusade in a nearby market, and I was prayed for for salvation. When my father heard of this, he beat me up and sent me away from his home. So I ran to my uncle and stayed there for a long while. My uncle also didn't value education anymore. He forced me to look after the neighbor's cattle as they paid him on my behalf. When I grew up at least to an age of 15, I moved to another home as a cowboy. And that man was really good and much trusted. He paid me little coins, and I saved for two years and then went back to school. I stayed with him. And when I did my national examination, I was among the best in the county. I got a letter to join one of the universities, but because of funds, I dropped at that level, and my life, dream, and ambition failed. Since then, I looked at myself as a failure and valueless in the society. Little did I know that God had a good plan for me to serve him, regardless of my level of education. Because of my faithfulness in Christ's work, one faithful brother in Christ here miraculously sponsored me And then I pursued my theological course at the Seminary Bible College for two years, and I became a pastor, very energetic and good-fearing. The following year, I joined Restoration Church as a youth pastor. I was promoted as an associate pastor, and years went by, but unfortunately, our church was torn apart in post-election violence that impacted us negatively in 2007, and everyone went by his way. I went on gathering few brothers and sisters, and we formed a new fellowship called Faithful Believers under a tree as we prayed earnestly for God's clear direction in our lives since all buildings were torched down. The fellowship picked well, and a lot of people got salvation, and unfortunately, we faced a Christian persecution in 2009 again, and everyone went on his way, and I moved to a new country in northwest parts of Kenya, or new county. I asked God many questions, why Did he allow us to go through such suffering? In his word, he promised that on the rock he would build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But actually, I never lost hope at all. I prayed earnestly. And because I had a heart and burden for Christ's ministry, I started a home fellowship again in my rental house. And all my neighbors joined me and we started growing in knowledge and stature of Christ as we learned to study his word together. We grew numerically and we rented a place, put a mud temporary structure mixed with bricks and that we're worshiping up to date, though not completed. And I think we have a picture of the, the church service. There's their mud brick church building. About my family, as stated above, we really passed through hard life, Brother Joey. I'm ashamed to tell you this, but my wife and I are not blessed with any white-collar jobs due to the level of education we got. Rather, we've been doing manual work at least to put something in mouth we have been selling charcoals as fuel for some years ago, at least to earn a living for quite some time, to buy food and basic needs, pay school fields, fees, medical bills, pay rent and other utilities. If the day went well, we'd been selling up to $2 per day. And if that didn't go well, we were selling as low as $1 a day. Since the year 2018, the government prohibited tree cutting as fuel, which were resourceful to us to earn a living. Since then, we've not earned anything because we now don't sell a charcoal again to earn a living. We stop because when we are got by the government, someone can be jailed for 10 years or a penalty of 10 million. Therefore, due to these regulations, I gave up and our income was cut short, and we started depending on our church, which doesn't have very many funds. People are poor, and most of the widows are aged. The church giving each month ranges between 15 and $20 in your currency. As you see, sir, funds are very little to spend both in our church utilities and in my family expenses, but we continue trusting in God for a miracle, for open doors, because He is a faithful God. Since coronavirus erupted at things, it became very hard here and people stayed indoors due to lockdown and curfews. I applied in a certain county hospital digging graves and burying people who died of coronavirus, and they were to be buried in the cemetery. I did that work for a year because no other job could I have done to bring little food on my table. It was unfortunate that people whom we were working with were very corrupt, and I resigned because of my faith and didn't want to continue doing that job because it would have tempered with my faith and my call in Christ's vineyard. Therefore, when I quit the cemetery job, it took me 21 days of prayer and fasting before the government allowed us to meet again in churches while social distancing as we did in our service. As you know well, sir, coronavirus impacted the whole world negatively, and everything stood still for a while as each one underwent trying moments in their respective closets. Even people are here still afraid of the virus and tough regulations imposed to the church by the government. Therefore, brethren, are not coming to church in full capacity as before, but we trust God to touch lives of the hopeless and bring them back to church. Also, next week, we shall start our door-to-door evangelism in order to reach the unreached with the Word of God. Anyway, I love to do work, but since resources here are very limited, since September last year, we've been experiencing long rains, and it's been raining here as I go down the river together with my wife as early as 6 a.m., at least to collect building sand, so we may be able to sell and earn a living. But since it's flooded, it became a risk for me to go down the river in search of the sand, so we're waiting for the water to capsize, and we can go back in sand harvesting. Otherwise, be blessed, sir. And I hope I've given you light of the place I come from, my life experience, and feel free asking any questions concerning our ministry and families. Thanks again for loving us the way we are. We have a picture of his family on the screen. He says, my wife's name is Everline, the child in purple is Teresa, in black is Powell, in yellow is Solomon, in sky blue is Dan, and in white is Deborah. It's a gorgeous family. Terza and Deborah are my biological children, while the rest three boys I adopted through the love of Christ. They belong to my elder brother, who was persecuted by Muslims, together with his wife, and died in cold blood. Since then, I'm the one taking care of them. And life seems hard, but this far, we give all the glory and honor to our Heavenly Father for remaining faithful in every situation. Therefore, continue praying for us, for our heart's desire and hunger is seeing souls being transformed and reaching out to the unreached with the word of God and giving hope to the brokenhearted. May the living God bless you, Brother Joey, and his face shine upon you, your families and your church, that God has entrusted with you. Because communicating with you, we feel like God is moving in us in a mighty way. We also continue praying for you, and we love you so much together with the saints there much greetings to your family, your entire church fellowship where the love of Christ is manifested. Happy hearing from you again, Brother Joey. And we think we have it hard. I think about what I whine about sometimes how we don't have a building yet, how we don't have this, we don't have that, how it's at the end of the week and we got to wait till Friday to get paid so I can buy groceries and eat a snack that actually tastes good. And then I read this, and I realize how sad is the way I've been thinking and feeling and living for a very long time. What would we do if Muslims came in the door and started massacring everyone? Would we be meeting the next week? What would we do if the government said, you have to shut down and you can't get together? What would we do if we couldn't afford to pay our bills and put food on the table and that we were literally starving every day? Would we still get up? And knock on our neighbor's door to tell them about Jesus Christ. What are we living for? Who are we living for? My friend Eric doesn't have to make more money. And be more comfortable before he's willing to serve. He willingly embraces his struggle. And he finds joy in the midst of his sacrifice and persecution to serve the Lord. What an inspiration. I have been weeping over this all week long. Because this should be the heart of every believer. For those who worship the one who's the first and the last. The one who is dead and alive again. It's the same call to us today. What are you living for? What is your life's pursuit? What is your great aim and your holy prize? What are you living for? And beloved, what do you need to renounce today that you could give your life more fully to the kingdom of God? To give yourself more fully to the Lord because, beloved, the more we let go, the more joy we will find. Because it's in serving Christ and dedicating and surrendering our lives to him, we find the true purpose for life. In him, it's an abundant life. It's an incredible life, but it requires sacrifice. I sacrifice the world to find my joy in Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word as you're beginning to open up to the church of Smyrna. God, And what a heart check. And I thank you for Pastor Eric and his family. God, I know how difficult it is to even speak of his circumstances, how he's embarrassed to share his testimony because he looks at our life. God, when he told me that our church and our That America looks so clean because of a simple picture I sent to him. My heart breaks at what he has to live in and live through every day. And his family is just about as big as mine. And I can't imagine not having money just to put food on the table to feed these children. And not only my own, but then to take on nephews because of an incredible hardship. God, I can't imagine. I'm so thankful that you're the same God whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. You are the same God whether things are going well or whether things are falling apart. You are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And what you have given to sustain me today is what will hold me tomorrow if I don't lose heart, if I don't give in, if I don't shrink back, and I remain faithful. And I pray, God, that this word would sink in our hearts, that we would have open eyes, that the scales would fall from our eyes, that the hardness would fall and be broken off of our hearts. And that today, God, we would renounce all that we have. And then when we wake up tomorrow, God, again, we would renounce all that we have. And that we would pick up our cross with the conviction that for to me, To live is Christ. And that it doesn't matter what's going on in the world or what's happening in my life. What matters is the kingdom of God. The call to be a witness. The call to be salt and light. To let your glory shine and your love abound as we represent Jesus in the earth. God, I pray that you would bless this man's family that, God, that you would open the door of provision. I felt this week that you were going to bring something into his life that would help him not only sustain an income but even minister into his community, and I pray that would come right now in Jesus' name. And I pray, God, that we would have a heart for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world that don't have it near as good but are often way more happy and way more faithful because they know the value of what really matters. It's not stuff. It's not experiences. It's not what the culture is saying is cool. What matters are the people in your life and the moments we have with them until either we pass or they pass and we see Jesus face to face. God, may we be a people that lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven, that the focus of our lives isn't earthly treasure, but it's heavenly treasure. And may that passion and that joy and that peace guide us and guard us every day. And we thank you, Lord, for giving it all for us, for giving your life on the cross, for paying it all. May your light and your life shine brightly in us. In Jesus' name. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give.